Thank you for having me here. I, I always relish the opportunity to speak about Harry Potter, as my students could tell you. Um, I'm trying to set up a whole class on it um, at our university. But as a theologian, I, I find Harry Potter profound, and that surprises many people. I'm a seminary professor. You'd be surprised at how many of us love Harry Potter, actually, but, or maybe you wouldn't. Um, but I, I want to just unpack it a bit, because I worry that what's, what's so interesting about Harry Potter is it's such a cultural phenomenon, and yet people love it for all the wrong reasons. And my worry is that people love it because they want to be like Voldemort, it turns out and they misconstrue the way of Dumbledore. Now, the first thing that should be clear is Harry Potter is not about magic any more than the Lord of the Rings is about jewelry. It's a different sort of text. And yet, I think what's less than obvious is that Harry Potter, the stories, and I'm thinking of the original stories primarily here. I don't want to get in too many debates about canon, but there's some intra-nerdy stuff about what is true canon with Harry Potter. I won't get there. But here's what I believe Harry Potter's about, just to say it up front. The Harry Potter stories are meant to articulate how the way of Jesus defeats evil. And that is clearly what they're about. Now, this might not seem likely, though, particularly for those of you who may have only watched the movies. I won't do a show of hands and shame you. But if you haven't read the books, and if you haven't read in particular the the tales of Beetle the Bard, you probably won't recognize some of these themes. See, all good fantasy books are, and by that I mean good fantasy books, they're meant to teach us about reality. That's what fantasy should do. But it's usually a narrow piece. So Narnia is written to help us understand what does it mean to have a God who is both utterly sovereign and free and also good. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, we we wrestle through the idea of light and darkness, of good and evil. And that's probably a little closer to what's going on in Harry Potter. But how is it Christian? Well, at first we discover little hints. Jesus is never mentioned, and yet every book is ordered around Christmas. That's interesting. Then it becomes a little more explicit. Like, the more you give yourself to evil, the more you become like a snake. She can hardly hide it at that point. You know, it's, it's a little obvious when you start making people snake-like. I mean, that's, a, that's a directly out of the pages of Genesis. The very fact that there's a way of light and a way of darkness, a way of good and a way of evil, is pointing to some sort of reality like this. But if that's all there was, she borrowed some things. These are mere glimpses. But it wasn't in really until I read through the books a second time. I was actually working on a project on Harry Potter at the time, so I reread the books. And I thought I knew what they were about. If you were to ask me then, I would have said, well, Harry Potter's about power at the end of the day. And that's true in, in many ways. The reason you talk about magic is to talk about power. But when I read through, one of the things that struck me that I didn't notice the first time through is that there was a deeper question, a more pervasive one. That these stories are about power, but in particular, they're about the power you give your life to forms you to stand before death in a certain way. And so like all good fantasy stories, there's a good team and a bad team, right? There are the Death Eaters, for those of you who don't know they're bad, but they sound bad, don't they? The Death Eaters think that if we wield power, power in control for domination, we can defeat death. Think of the image. We can consume it and destroy it. Notice that there's a quest for immortality that is going on here. 
if you have read the books, you recognize that there's a family narrative here. The way of Grindelwald gets perfected in the way of um, Voldemort, just as the way of Dumbledore eventually gets perfected by the way of Harry. But you see, the reality of the stories is that you have a figure in Voldemort who's embraced this way to defeat death, the way of power in himself. And young Harry is convinced that's real power. He doesn't know how to stand before it. What's interesting is the whole time, Dumbledore keeps saying weird things to him like, you know, Harry, you're more powerful than Dumbledore, than Voldemort. And Harry's like, no, I'm clearly not. No, no, you love, and love is more powerful. You know what's interesting about Harry Potter is the stories? You know who's totally uninterested in magic in Harry Potter? Dumbledore, the greatest wizard of all time. You know what he is interested in? Love, kindness, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, it turns out. He recognizes that that is the way to power and not the way of Voldemort. And so in these Death Eaters, we see what Scripture would call the way of the world, the way of the flesh, and the way of the demonic, as you find in James 3. But then, of course, there's also a good side. And they are called the Order of the Phoenix. Now, the Phoenix, it's important to pay attention to the imagery here. She, Rowling loves imagery. Why are they personified by a phoenix? Well, a phoenix is a bird that accepts its death because it trusts in resurrection. A phoenix is a bird that knows the only way to defeat death is to embrace it because of what's on the other side. Just like in Scripture, we discover that there's two paths. There's the way of wisdom or the way of folly, the way of the kingdom or the way of the world, the way of the spirit or the way of the flesh, the way from above or the way from below. Scripture loves giving us these. And in Harry Potter, we find the two things. Will you go the way of the Death Eaters, driven by fear, dehumanizing, making you more animalistic? Or the Order of the Phoenix, where you embrace your humanity because you come to understand that love is the only way to truly be human. When Harry goes to his parents' tombstone, he gets a sick feeling in his stomach. Now, most readers won't know the reason he gets a sick feeling is because he reads a passage etched into his parents' tombstone. It's 1 Corinthians 15. This becomes one of the most important and most explicit Christian claims that Rowling makes. And she gives it to us at a key point, at a key place, to help us realize what her books are about. But Harry doesn't like how 1 Corinthians sounds. This is what it says on Harry's parents' tombstone. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is straight out of the scriptures, straight out of 1 Corinthians 15, and that is the verse etched in his tombstone of his parents. And when Harry looks at it, he's worried that it sounds too much like the Death Eaters. He's troubled by it. See, what Harry's confusing here is he, he came to think there's some people trying to defeat death, and there's some people who aren't, but that isn't true. Scripture's clear, the last enemy to be defeated is death, and it's only defeated by the cross. It only is defeated by the self-sacrificial love of the chosen one. And of course, that is exactly what the, the Harry Potter stories are trying to narrate. It isn't that his parents were trying to grasp for immortality. They had come to understand what life is about and what it means to live in wisdom. Now, one of the ways this becomes clear is when you read the tales of Beetle the Bard. How many people have read the tales of the Beetle the Bard here, out of curiosity? Okay, handful of, yes, the young ones, of course. So for those of you who don't know about these, 
This is a book that children who grew up in magical home would have had read to them by their parents. That's interesting because, of course, we know we must come like a child to receive the kingdom of God, and that's precisely what's going on here. And what's interesting is if you think of Voldemort, every single mistake he makes, he wouldn't have made if he only would have read and meditated on the tales of Beetle the Bard, every single one. And it just, every one of those stories highlights, if you give yourself to this way, it'll warp your soul. And you may appear powerful, but you won't be. You will wither away and die. The most important, perhaps, is the one that is narrated in the book itself, in the books themselves, the tales of the three brothers. Again, for those of you who don't know, three brothers come across, um, really, I'll skip the story. They, go, they come to death and they make a deal, basically. And death is personified here. He shows up in a personal form, in, in many ways like scripture does, actually. And the older brother makes a deal with death and chooses the most powerful wand in the world, what came to be known as the elder wand. And death gives it to him readily because death is wise here. Death knows if I give this person the most powerful wand, there's going to be more death. And that's exactly what happens. The next brother was mourning a loved one. And so this brother asked to have power over death and death gives him the resurrection stone. But of course, this is unnatural, and it ends up warping the created order, and it, it actually doesn't give him at the end of the day what he wants, and it also leads to his death. The last brother, though, the last brother asks for the cloak of invisibility. He's going to spend a life hiding from death. Now, I think of what that is. It's living in such a way where death isn't constantly pounding on your door. It's wisdom. It's not to get out of death, but like the phoenix, it's to one day in wisdom be able to walk to your death knowing there is life beyond because life is truly resurrected life. As legend has it, if someone could somehow unite the deathly hallows, the elder wand, the resurrection stone, and the cloak of invisibility, they would become the master of death. It's not surprising that Voldemort wanted that, it's interesting that Dumbledore wanted it. But Harry, we're told, was better man than both. And Harry actually becomes the true master of death. What's so fascinating about young Harry is what he does when he masters death. He uses them to give himself sacrificially for others, so therefore breaking the bonds of death over them. Instead of seeing these things to be wielded in power, he uses them so that he can walk to give his life for another. He knows that he cannot hide from death with his cloak of invisibility forever, so he uses it to walk into the forest that night to meet Voldemort and to walk to his death. He realizes the resurrection stone shouldn't be used to bring people back from the dead, a point that Dumbledore himself didn't know and tried to, in his guilt, bring his relatives back from the dead. Instead, Harry uses it to get strength to embrace the calling he had as the one who was chosen. Instead of wielding the elder wand, Harry uses it to bring his wand back from the dead, an interesting moment of resurrection at the end, where he, he resurrects his own wand with the other, not because he wants to embrace power, but simply because he wants to embrace who he is and who he is called to be. See, Harry didn't embrace power but weakness and he did so for the sake of love, continually. 
He's an interesting figure because he's called to be the chosen one, but he doesn't want to be. He wants friendship. He wants to be normal. He, he didn't sign up for any of this, but he embraces it. And the formation of this young boy is the formation of someone who must come to realize that they live in the present evil age. And they are called to embrace a certain way to stand against evil, and he does. But it means becoming a certain kind of person. You know, one of the things that's easy to miss in these stories is that magic isn't mere technique. You couldn't just learn a spell and cast it. You had to become a certain kind of person. So if you're good, you actually couldn't cast evil spells. This is why Snape is by far the most redeemed character. Because Snape, to embrace his mission, had to warp his soul for the sake of love. He had to embrace a way of darkness precisely because he wanted to be for the light. He had to, in a sense, lose his life rather than save it. Because he knew if he didn't lose his life for the sake of love, he would find it. Increasingly, we discover all through these stories, Voldemort loses his humanity. He becomes more beast-like in every way. In fact, of course, more snake-like. Harry comes to realize that he has an edge on Voldemort because Voldemort has no reason to live at all. Because power is not a good reason to live, it turns out. That Harry begins to not fear him, but actually to kind of have compassion on him. Because he's a sad kind of person. Now this wasn't only true of Harry. When he was younger, he struggled quite a lot. This is a boy who was marked by death his entire life, quite literally. Watching loved ones suffer for him, feeling the constant abuse, neglect, losing his parents. But this meant he was never unrealistic about life or about death. He was tempted by the hallows. What his experience in front of the mirror of Erised proves, like Dumbledore, he too was tempted by the resurrection stone. It's interesting that Dumbledore himself, though great, he wasn't humble enough like Harry to, um, to unite the hallows for the sake of others. But he was still too captivated, interestingly enough, by his own guilt. His own guilt drives him to try to use the resurrection stone rather than to do it out of love. When Harry meets Dumbledore after he is struck by Voldemort in that weird kind of heavenly realm, this is what Dumbledore says to him. Maybe a man in a million could unite the hallows, Harry. I was fit only to possess the meanest of them, the least extraordinary. I was fit to own the Elder Wand and not to boast of it and not to kill with it. I was permitted to take it and use it because I took it not for gain, but to save others from it. But the cloak I took out of vain curiosity, and so it could never have worked for me as it works for you. The stone I would have used in an attempt to drag back those who were at peace rather than to enable my self-sacrifice as you did. You are the worthy possessor of the hallows. In many ways, what we discover in this narrative is Jesus' claim that if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. We find this, this group, right, this group, most of whom live in deep fear, the, the death eaters, who are desperately trying to save their lives, and we find them losing them. When Harry goes to that heavenly realm, what does the powerful Voldemort look like? Like a withered mess that can't even stand. That's what we might think of as the sight of faith. 
where you see through the power structures of the world into reality, and you realize that the way he gave himself to ultimately warped his soul. But Harry, this child, who doesn't have half the magical ability, somehow wins because he gave himself to love, and ultimately he gave himself for self-sacrifice. Now what's interesting is when we attend to scripture in this, we see these same themes all over the place. We see things in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit that Dumbledore seemed to embody all the time. We see that that death is confronting humankind and they have to stand before it somehow. We all have to give ourselves to a way that forms us. And the question is, what is that way? We recognize that Christ has broken the the bonds of death itself and in in his own death, defeated the one who had the power of death. All of these themes are kind of fully embodied. But we see another passage all throughout the books that is perhaps most prevalent. That's a passage from 2 Corinthians. When Paul is told that the power of God is made perfect in weakness. And what's interesting is, as Dumbledore leads these children to become who they are, what they must come to realize is you can, like Draco, out of fear, give yourself to power to try to construct a life of power, but you'll lose your life and you won't be powerful. Or, if you embrace your weakness and you journey along the path of love, you will realize what it means to truly embrace your humanity. And so in Dumbledore's will, he gives three gifts to the three kind of chosen ones, Hermione, Ron, and Harry. Each one of them introduces them to their weakness. To Hermione, with all her knowledge, he gives a children's book that offends her sensibilities. Because Hermione needs to become like a child so she can embrace the kingdom of God. She needs to come and wrestle with childish things because Voldemort is no longer able to. And she needs to not outlearn her way, but recognize the simplicity of the childish reality of the way of love. Ron is, is given the Deluminator, a curious instrument of Dumbledore's own making, that, that will eventually lead him back from his wayward wandering. That'll expose him to the rashness of his anger and his jealousy. And that'll force him to come grips to grips with his fear. Harry is given something that requires him to trust. Trust me to the end. Trust me to the end. And for Harry, that's difficult. That's something he's constantly learning. It's something that, unfortunately, Voldemort was never able to learn. In Matthew 16, 26, when Jesus says, For what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? What shall you give in return for your soul? That is the the tragedy of Voldemort. If you haven't yet read the Tales of Beetle the Bard, one of the great is the, the Warlock with a Hairy Heart, which is basically another way of telling Voldemort's story. That that if you try to hide your heart away out of fear of being hurt, that what'll happen is you'll lose your soul, the very thing that you're wanting to gain. And if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But there's a way of losing your life to find it if we can embrace the way of love. Voldemort, of course, is readily able to find disciples. He's readily able to find people looking to have power, looking to have significance. When he takes over Quirrell, in the very first book, actually, Quirrell explains all the things he learned from Lord Voldemort. 
He says, a foolish young man I was then, full of ridiculous ideas about good and evil. Lord Voldemort showed me how wrong I was. There is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Notice how contrary this is to Jesus' claim that it's in, my, it's in your weakness that my power is perfected. And of course, Dumbledore stands readily available to show us what the other way looks like. And whether it's Dumbledore or whether it's Snape or certainly whether it is Harry, continually we see in this narrative a vision of power where self-sacrificial love is the only way to stand against the darkness of the world. Now, of course, it's not any self-sacrificial love. There is a Christ figure, and it's Harry. Harry must embrace death and resurrection so that he can break the bonds of death. You know, in, in stories like these, it's interesting because they don't proclaim the gospel very well. It would be weird if Dumbledore said, but of course, give your life to Jesus, because that would have been like, whoa, that's a, that's a jump in the narrative, you know, that'd, that'd be weird. <laughs> Fantasy's trying to give us a small glimpse of vision, of reality. And one of the ones that I think is so interesting is if, if the way of love is true, what does the church look like? If this is right, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose it for Christ's sake, you'll find it. What is the church like? And of course, in these stories, Hogwarts is meant to help us understand the nature of the church. There was a great blog post done by a scholar named Jake Meador, and he is also a Harry Potter fanatic. And he was talking about this sideline that I just missed. It's one of those lines you just read over and you don't think much about. But if you remember during the Triwizard Tournament, when Flora de la Course shows up to Hogwarts, she's offended by the place. Particularly by the poltergeist that floats about. Jeez, like she's just, just totally offended by this. And she makes a comment like, none of this would happen at my institution. Right? We, we just don't do this kind of thing here. And, and Jake, when he meditated on this, he said, you know, and this is a quote from him, he said, some of these marginal characters, the school's many ghosts kind of come to mind that, that make Hogwarts a very weird place. But he goes, others are much more important to the story of how weird Hogwarts is. One teacher is a former Death Eater. That seems like an unlikely hire. Yet he's welcomed at Dumbledore's Hogwarts. Right? Another teacher was expelled from the school when he, was a student, when he was a student but was allowed to stay as the gamekeeper. Of course, Hagrid. Another, he hires a werewolf, something of an untouchable in the wizarding society. And yet he too is warmly received at Hogwarts. You know, what's interesting about Hogwarts, as Meodor kind of meditates on this, is Hogwarts has an economy of love. And when you have an economy of love and not power, you, you try to open wide and receive the whole swath of what is presented because you believe in redemption. When Voldemort's people take over Hogwarts, the first thing he does is he gets rid of every um, school minus Slytherin, every house minus Slytherin, and he, he gets rid of difference, and he kicks out everyone he can who's different. Whereas Dumbledore knows that Draco has been charged to kill him, and he keeps him there because he believes in redemption. This, this idea that, that we need to cultivate societies of love, that we need to cultivate places that give themselves to self-sacrificial love. This is why we see what's at least a partial redemption of the Malfoys. Because the Malfoys, for all their fear-mongering, for all their um, spinelessness, for all their failure to stand for what is true, 
they come to see the self-sacrificial love of Harry. And something allows them to now embrace redemption in a unique sort of way. So when we read these books, as you should, we need to read them in, an, in the way they were written to be read. We need to read them recognizing that Rowling is giving us a very unique picture of Christian wisdom. And f- her use of 1 Corinthians 15 is telling. The last enemy to be defeated is death that that image really does help us see how the entire narrative holds together. And in this present evil age, there's few narratives more helpful to embrace than that one. And yet, so I'll end with this. Here's my worry. My worry is we go to Universal Studios because we want to wave wands. But that's not what the stories are about. The stories aren't about wands and they aren't about magic. They're about what way have you embraced way of power and strength for domination, self-creation, or the way of power and weakness for the sake of love. And whatever way you embrace will shape a life, a life that is dehumanizing or a life that leads into an embrace of our humanity. One way is a distinctively Christian vision of reality, of what it means to, to stand against the powers and principalities of the age. The other way is to kind of capitulate to a society that is slowly destroying itself as it can no longer understand what it even means to be human and therefore is becoming more beast-like at every turn. And so uh, thank you for allowing me to muse a bit about, 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 about Harry Potter. So um, I appreciate it. That's, that's, that's my take on what's going on in Harry Potter. Well, thank you.